The reading is taken from Romans 3, verses 9 to 20. As it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, let's just pray together, shall we, before we uh, come to open this word of God to us this evening. Father, we recognize that none of us can have understanding of your word without the help of your spirit. And so we pray now, come Holy Spirit and teach us uh, from your word, teach us uh, and help us to become more like Jesus. Amen. Well, on the uh, 10th of April in 1912, the Titanic left Southampton on her maiden voyage to New York. She was an impressive vessel designed with the aid of the most up-to-date technology and was popularly held to be unsinkable. Four days into her maiden voyage, she hit an iceberg, uh, sustained fatal damage below the waterline. There was a passenger on board called Elizabeth Schutz, and she described the remarkable scenes which immediately followed that collision with the iceberg. Here's what she said. No confusion, no noise of any kind. One could believe no danger imminent. Our stewardess came and said she could learn nothing. Looking out into the companionway, I saw heads appearing, asking questions from half-closed doors. All perfectly still, no excitement. I sat down again. My friend was by this time dressed. Still her daughter and I talked on, Margaret pretending to eat a sandwich. Her hand shook so that the bread kept parting company from the chicken. Then I saw that she was frightened, and for the first time, I was too. But why get dressed as no one had given the slightest hint of any possible danger? An officer's cap passed the door. I asked, is there any accident or danger of any kind? None, so far as I know, was his courteous answer, spoken quietly and most kindly. Well, as many of you will know, gradually the available lifeboats on the Titanic were got ready and the crew encouraged the passengers to evacuate. Now, despite the fact that the ship itself didn't carry nearly enough lifeboats to fit everyone on board, the passengers were reluctant to leave the apparent safety of the Titanic to board these small, flimsy lifeboats because the ship appeared to be in no imminent danger. And so, incredibly, most of the boats were launched partially empty. One of the boats that was meant to hold 40 people left the Titanic with only 12 people on board. 
But the Titanic did sink, and 1,500 people, nearly three-quarters of those on board, died. Two of the lifeboats never even got used. In the midst of certain impending tragedy, most people simply did not grasp the reality of the situation. There was little sense of danger until it was too late. Well, our passage from Romans this evening sounds thoroughly depressing. Paul is only really making one major point throughout this section, and it's the same point that he was making in chapter 2 and chapter 1. Tonight's passage is his summing up, the conclusion of his argument, and he just keeps bashing away at the same depressing message. Everyone is helplessly sinful, none of us can do anything about it, and all of us are headed straight for God's just judgment and for destruction. Thoroughly depressing. But actually what Paul is doing is sounding the alarm on a sinking ship. Paul knows that the situation is not hopeless. He knows that there is a lifeboat that is big enough for everyone. He's about to begin talking about that in the next section of his letter. But you see, it's no good pointing out the lifeboat if no one on board realizes that they're sinking. And so this passage shouts a warning to all of us. Please get serious and grasp the reality of the situation you are in. You are sinking and you desperately need to get into the lifeboat. So I don't think this passage is depressing. Instead, it is the alarm bell that all of us desperately need to hear. And because of that, it is the foundation of our only possible hope. So let's have a look together at what is really going on in this passage. Well, we can see straight away from verse 9 that Paul is concluding his argument, which has begun back at, at chapter 1, verse 18. It's going to be a help, by the way, if you have your Bibles open. And we're going to need to flick around a little bit this evening, hopefully not too much. So this then is the conclusion to the argument that began back in chapter 1, verse 18, where Paul lays out his basic point. He says this, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Well, as the last few sermons in this evening series have shown, Paul deals primarily with the Gentiles, that is, everyone who is not a Jew, in chapter 1, and then in chapter 2, he deals primarily with the Jews. But his message is exactly the same for both sets of people. Everyone is helpless, a helpless sinner, deserving of God's wrath. Now it's true, of course, for Paul that being a Jew is still of great benefit because it means if you're a Jew, you have access to God's words. You have the scriptures, the Old Testament. The Gentiles, if you remember, back in chapter 1, only have nature the world around them from which to learn about God. And the Jews have God's own words, a written record of the things God has done throughout history. And so at the start of chapter 3, Paul says what a big advantage that is for the Jews. But, and here we get to the conclusion which Paul reaches in our passage tonight, this advantage to being Jewish doesn't help at all if people don't actually follow God's written laws. Having the law is of little benefit if you don't obey the law. And we know that Paul says 
the Jews don't follow God's laws because he says no one does. And so Paul concludes in verse 9, our reading this evening, are we, that is the Jews, any better? Not at all, because we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. I want us to notice that exact phrase, under sin. You see, Paul doesn't say Jews and Gentiles alike all sin sometimes. He doesn't even say Jews and Gentiles alike are all sinners. He says Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. Under sin. Paul is thinking of sin here as a power, a force that dominates all humans. He says effectively we are under sin's rule or sin's authority. Well, if you think I'm reading perhaps a bit too much into these two little words here, I wonder if you just turn over with me to chapter 6. Here in chapter 6, Paul is talking about Christians who have trusted in Jesus and by trusting in Jesus have been rescued from the sinking ship of chapter 3. Now look at what he says uh, in verse 6 of chapter 6. For we know that our old self was crucified with Jesus so that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Or look at verse 12. Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Or how about verse 14. For sin shall not be your master because you are not under law but under grace. Paul then thinks of sin as a master, a power which naturally reigns over us. And he says all of us, all humans, are slaves to sin, slaves to this power, forced to obey its evil desires. And that is what he means when he says in verse 9 of our passage back in chapter 3, Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. We are all helpless, trapped by this power of sin and unable to free ourselves. I don't want you to misunderstand me. By saying that we're all trapped under the power of sin, Paul is not saying that it's not our fault, that somehow this nasty power called sin has enslaved us all against our will. Far from it. Look down at verses 11 to 12. This is where Paul begins to quote from the Old Testament to show how it is that everyone is under sin. And he says this, There is no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. Paul then is quite clear, we brought this slavery on ourselves. All of us have actively turned away. Now, of course, a lot of the time we don't think of it consciously in those terms ourselves. But we've all done it nonetheless. We do it by choosing to live our lives on our terms, in our way, rather than on God's terms, in God's way. We are slaves to sin because we have chosen to be. But now that we're in slavery, we are stuck there and can't get out of it ourselves. And now look at the result of this huge all of humanity scale turning away from God. Look at the results of it in verses 13 to 17. Lying, deception, cursing, bitterness, violence, murder, misery, and war. There it is in graphic technicolor. 
Now, if you're anything like me, there's a fairly obvious objection that rises up within us at this point. You see, few of us would question Paul's claim that all these horrible sins, that big list in verses 13 to 17, all these sins are present in our world today. I mean, you only have to watch the 10 o'clock news on any given evening to demonstrate the truth of what Paul is saying. Obviously, all of that stuff is horrible and wrong, and God is quite right to be against it and angry about it. And few of us, I think, if we're at least reasonably honest, would challenge Paul's claim that we are all at our worst moments, if you catch us on a bad day, we're all a little bit like that list, at times. But the objection that rises within us is this. I'm not characterised by that kind of stuff. I don't feel like a slave to those sorts of sins. I mean, my feet are not generally known for being swift to shed blood. I might lie or curse occasionally, but I think it's getting a little bit far, God, to say that the poison of vipers is on my lips. I may not be great, but I'm not that bad. Sure, there may be some people who are, but it's not me that I see there being described in that list. Well, Paul knew about that natural objection that rises up in us when we read this list. It rose up in the people of his day as well. You see, when Paul's Jewish readers saw the list of sins in verses 10 to 18, they would have felt exactly the same way as we might feel today. That list is not describing me. It has to be describing other people. It must be describing the Gentiles. In other words, both them and us want to say, God, get some perspective. Why are you accusing me of all this sin when I'm really not that bad? Why don't you focus your wrath on the genuinely bad guys somewhere else? As I say, Paul knew about this natural objection and he sets out in this passage tonight to show how flimsy this objection really is. And so in verse 19, he says to his Jewish readers, all of these quotations that I've just written down in verses 10 to 18, all of these quotations come from your scriptures, from your law. That means they're written to you and not to anyone else. But the good guys, the so-called good guys, could still say, well, that isn't fair. These things shouldn't be written to me because I'm not like that. It's just not accurate. And so in verse 10, Paul puts the final nail in the coffin for this natural objection. Quoting from Psalm 14, he says, there is no one righteous, not even one. It's that word righteous that is the key. What does it really mean? Well, Paul has given us the answer back in chapter 2, verse 13. Chapter 2, verse 13, he says this, It is not those who hear the law who are righteous in God's sight, but it is those who obey the law who will be declared righteous. Being righteous, then, is about obeying God's law, but it is also something that is determined in God's sight. In other words, put simply, God decides who is righteous and who isn't. And so being righteous is effectively the same thing as being in the right before God, in God's eyes. So Paul says to his first century readers 
and to us today, your natural objection cannot stand up before God. Stop trying to deflect God's attention to other worse people. Wake up and realize that he is focused on you and your sin. You may well be better than someone else you can point to, but God says, are you righteous in his sight when his eyes are only on you? Stop comparing yourself to someone else or to humanity at large. Start comparing yourself to God's standards. Well, suddenly that objection that wells up within us starts to look a little bit flimsy. God is perfect and his standards are perfect. We are not, and that puts us all, every one of us, from the charitable saint to the most wretched criminal, in a lot of trouble. The ship, you see, is sinking. Left to ourselves, we are all sinking. That's what these verses tell us. And if the ship is sinking, then what is the point in arguing that we're in a better cabin to someone else? Who cares if we think we're in first class and we could show you someone else who's definitely in third class when the whole ship is going down? Paul has shown that it is quite true that there is no one righteous, not even one. Not in God's sight. And now he shows us the results of our unrighteousness. Every mouth will be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Down in verse 19, verse 20. Confronted by God in all his holiness, that objection that wells up within us and any others we might come up with are not going to stand up. Paul says every mouth will be silenced when we're all held accountable to God. And of course we know what God's just verdict then will be because Paul's already told us that back in chapter 1 and verse 18 that I read at the start. Each of us face God's wrath, his just judgment. But simply what is not righteous cannot live with a righteous God. We are not righteous, not even one of us. And so all of us deserve to be cut off from God forever. And the Bible calls that hell. The ship is sinking. The ship is genuinely sinking and all of us are on board. We must not be like those people on the Titanic who couldn't or wouldn't grasp the reality of the situation. This passage is God's alarm bell to a sinking ship. Now, I realize that alarm bells are not often very pleasant things to hear because they disturb your peace and they make a racket when you're busy doing other more important things. When I was at boarding school uh, as a young boy, some friends had a fire alarm bell that was situated in their dormitory just above one of their beds. They used to test the fire alarm every Tuesday morning about 7.30 and the noise, obviously, which was going to wake them up, frustrated these guys so much that they got a game sock, one of those thick socks, and wedged it into the alarm bell to stop it being able to ring and to muffle this sound. I think it's tempting for us to do the same when we hear God's alarm bell in this passage. The noise of it is annoying, disturbing, and we're busy doing other things. We don't want to hear it. 
But here's the key point. If the ship is really sinking, it is not a good idea to muffle the sound of the alarm. We need to hear it. We need to hear it loud and clear. So what are we to do with this alarm bell? Once we have heard it and recognized that it is God's alarm bell to a sinking ship, what are we to do with it? Well, I think that will depend upon where we are at the moment. There may be some of us here this evening who have not heard this alarm bell before. Or perhaps some of us have heard it before, but we ignored it or thought it was ringing for somebody else. It isn't. It is ringing for you and for me. Paul couldn't be clearer here. Over and over again, he stresses that all are under sin. Everyone, whether we think we're the good guys or the bad guys, the bell is ringing for everyone. It is ringing for you. But if that has hit home for you this evening, then you need to respond to God's alarm bell. Tonight's passage has been bad news, but it is not depressing. It is vital that we know the reality of the situation we're in, and it is not depressing because God has provided a lifeboat. First of all, this is the starting point, we have to realize we're in need of a rescue. We have to realize the ship is sinking. And that is what tonight's passage aims at. That is what it's trying to do. But once we have realized this and accepted it, we need to get into the lifeboat that God offers us. Next week, Will is going to preach from the following part of Paul's letter. You remember how Paul's argument began back in chapter 1, verse 18, by saying the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men. Well, we're about to find out next week that something else of God has been revealed. And if tonight we have grasped the reality of our situation under sin, then next week's passage begins with some of the most truly mind-blowing verses I think you will ever read or hear. Paul says this, But now a righteousness, a righteousness, remember that is being right in God's sight, the thing which none of us can ever have or be by ourselves because all of us are helplessly under sin. But now a righteousness from God, apart from law, has been made known. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Well, I I can't steal Will's sermon, it's really not fair. But you just have to know tonight that God has provided a lifeboat through Jesus. The ship is sinking. We are sinking. Once you realize that, run to the lifeboat that God has provided for you. Don't be like the people on the Titanic who didn't take their place in those lifeboats and left them empty. Take up your place. It's not a complicated thing to do. You just need to ask God to rescue you. Tell him that you accept that you're sinking because of your sin and tell him that you want to accept the place that he has made for you in Jesus, his lifeboat. If that is you tonight, then please talk to a friend afterwards. 
come and talk to Andrew or myself or somebody who's been up at the front and we'd love to pray with you uh, and just help you uh, in those first few steps as you accept Jesus as your life but it is the most exciting and life-changing thing you can do but there are of course many of us here tonight who have heard this alarm bell and have turned to Jesus for rescue a long time ago what does this passage have to say to us hasn't in fact this whole sermon been a bit of a waste of time for us I mean true of course but in the past and dealt with already well by God's grace our sin has been dealt with already if we have turned to Jesus but Paul wrote this letter Paul wrote this passage to Christians and so I think it is safe to assume it has something to say to us what does Paul say his purpose is in writing it two points before I finish firstly it is good for us to remember where we were when Christ rescued us to remember our own natural situation on a sinking ship because it eliminates boasting this is Paul's own application uh, in chapter 3 verses 27 to 28 <coughs> he says this where then is boasting it is excluded on what principle on that of observing the law we might perhaps add at this point on what principle on that of going to church on that of knowing the Bible on that of giving to the poor no says Paul not on that principle but on that of faith for we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from observing the law you see God's lifeboat rescue is the ultimate leveler because it is precisely that God's rescue this passage should remind us as Christians that when we accepted God's rescue in Jesus all those years or weeks or months ago we accepted along with it this fundamental concept that we cannot rescue ourselves our good works cannot rescue us our own efforts result in a sit in a ship that is sinking it's only God's grace and power that can change that and if it's God's grace and power that makes the difference then there is nothing about ourselves for us to boast of but secondly there is one kind of boasting that we as Christians are called to do Paul says in Galatians 6:14, may I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ may I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ let us never boast about ourselves for there is nothing there to boast about but let us boast about Jesus let us declare how much he has done for there is an endless supply of boastworthy material for boasting in the cross of Jesus is simply this telling other people on the sinking ship where or who the lifeboat is this is what this passage made Paul do this was the impact of this passage on him its application in his life he says back in chapter 1 verses 14 to 15 I am bound both to Greeks and non-Greeks both to the wise and to the foolish that is why I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are at Rome that is why I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are at Rome and so this passage should remind us as Christians that the whole world every single one of us desperately needs Jesus our lifeboat 
because the whole world is sinking. This passage should stop us boasting about ourselves, but it should certainly get us boasting about Jesus. Let me suggest that if we don't feel the force of the demand upon us to tell other people about Jesus, if that force and impact isn't striking us, perhaps it's because we have forgotten the force of this passage. This passage says, the world is sinking. And please, God, do not let us be guilty of sitting quietly in the lifeboat, making ourselves comfortable while the ship goes down. Let's pray together. Father God, we recognize that this passage is not easy to read. We recognize that it is your alarm bell to a sinking ship, and we do not want to know that we are sinking. Father, for those of us here tonight who have not responded in the past to this alarm bell, who have not yet turned to Jesus and said, Rescue me, be my lifeboat, get me out of this sinking ship. Lord God, for those people, I pray, speak to them now. Do your wonderful work, Lord, that only you can do, of turning people around, turning hearts to acknowledge you and to turn to you for rescue. And thank you so much, Lord, that you do rescue us, that the lifeboat you give us in Jesus is totally secure and big enough for everyone. And Father, for those of us who are Christians this evening, I pray that this passage, this warning again from Scripture, would stop us boasting futilely about ourselves, but would get us boasting again about Jesus, boasting again about the lifeboat that you have given us in Jesus. We pray this in his name and for his glory. Amen.